you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Luke, I am your father. This has meaning to a number of you, right? You, you have seen the original three Star Wars movies, and, and you know what that moment was like, uh, especially if, if you saw it that first time, before the whole world kind of had it like in the zeitgeist, to hear, Luke, I am your father. Now, there's some of you who this is not anything you care about. Betty Cornback, do you care about Luke, I am your father? You do? Okay. You don't. Okay. If you haven't seen the Star Wars movies, it isn't that significant, is it? For some of us, hearing the words, I am Iron Man. Whew, I almost cried just right there saying it. That is the culmination of 22 movies in 10 years of cinematic history. Uh, for those of us who have made it that far in the Marvel world, those words mean something. I suspect there are some of you in here who have not watched 22 Marvel movies and spent 10 years getting to that point. Am I correct? Holly has not. She's admitting it. Betty is not. Okay, so I got our movies wrong, Betty. Um, frankly, my darling, I don't give a... This means something to some of y'all. I'm not going to finish it. You're not going to get me caught on camera finishing that phrase. But to some of you, that means something. Paige, does that mean anything? Okay. To those of you who read the book or watched the movie Gone with the Wind, to hear Rhett say these words to Scarlett means something. Because you have the context for it, right? Josiah is into these dogman books now. Uh, they're from the same author who brought us Captain Underpants. Are you into a meeting? Dogman? Okay. They're fine. They're fine books. I'm, I'm glad to read them, but they are not a book that uh, Felsha can read a few chapters and then put it aside, and then I can read a few chapters with Josiah, because these graphic novels about a half-dog, half-human cop person just don't make any sense if you drop in halfway through the book. So yesterday, I read 204 pages of Dogman's story where Petey gets uh, pardoned from jail and uh, he reconnects with his son and then uh, Dogman, like it's this whole thing, right? But I had the whole context for it and, and the story was quite enjoyable when it was all 204 pages. By the end, Josiah was starting to get restless and I was like, nope, we're finishing this thing. We're, we are finding out what happened to Pete's dad. We've got multi multiple generation conflict going on here. We're finishing this book. We need context for stories to make sense, right? You can't just jump to the climax of something and it not, uh, not feel weird, right? Often we're forced to do that with scripture. We're forced to take a story and pull it out of its context uh, so that we can approach it and learn from it and dig into it. And I get this. This book is not, like, small, right? It, we can't every Sunday tell the whole biblical narrative. I did that for about my first six months here. Every, every sermon, I would kind of give the whole narrative to get us there. And I think people got tired of me saying, you know, it kind of started in the beginning when God was doing his creative work. We're not going to start there. 
But this story in the gospel day, the story of Jesus dining with some friends, needs context. Quite frankly, Jesus dines with this family twice. We have two different Jesus and his friends eating dinner story. Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are like buddies, right? He's got his discipleship team who he's out sending out and like giving orders and they're going and doing sermons, but these appear to just be his friends, people that he truly delights in. You know, they're not part of the 12, uh, but they're, they're beloved. Uh, ben Witherington would argue that the beloved disciple in John's gospel is not actually John himself, but Lazarus, that now, this family is very important to Jesus. In today's story, we often mix up with the first time they had dinner. This first story back earlier in the gospel where Martha is like slaving in the kitchen and Mary's just chilling by Jesus' feet. And Martha is not happy with Mary in that first story, right? I'm here doing all the meal prep. I've polished the dishes. They didn't polish dishes. They were all made of clay. But you know, I've done all this stuff to get dinner ready. And Mary's just reclining at your feet. And in that story, Jesus says, Martha, she's got the right idea. I'm not going to be with you much longer. Like, this is the good thing to be together. And then we keep going through the gospel. And eventually, we meet back up with the Bethany family. And it's not at this meal. Jesus is out doing his ministry. And uh, word gets sent to him. Lazarus is sick. He's dying. Come as fast as you can. And as Jesus is wont to do, he takes his time. He hangs out doing the ministry he's doing. He stays in the place he is. And people are getting antsy. Lazarus is going to die. Hey, Jesus, if we don't go do this, Lazarus is going to die. And it's like days later, he begins to make his way to Bethany, to the place where uh, this family lives. I like to call them the Bethanies, but that gets confusing to people. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Jesus shows up and, and Martha comes out. If you'd have showed up, when we asked you to, he'd still be alive, but he's, he's buried and stinky now. And Jesus comes more and more in, into the village, and, and Mary comes out. She, she stayed at the house with those who were comforting her. And she comes out, and she's like, Jesus, if you'd have come, he'd still be alive. And uh, the, the broader village of Bethany, which is really close to Jerusalem, it's like two miles. It is not a far walk. You could, you could make this trip. This whole village is out kind of supporting this family, and, and they watch Jesus go out towards the tomb. And we, we've heard this story, right? Jesus goes out, and, and he draws near, and they, they, they begin to roll back the stone, and, and people are like, no, he's going to smell rotten. Four days in this tomb? And then we always get the verse that people quote when you want to ask them if they memorize scripture and they go, well, Jesus wept. Um, yes, Jesus weeps because this dear friend of his is dead. But then he says, Lazarus, come out of that tomb. And the story is full of great detail. He comes out, head still bound, body still bound. He's got the burial clothes on. There, there is an odor still about him and yet he is up and walking. The dead have been raised. This becomes highly problematic for the religious leaders. This uh, marks a turning point. They already wanted to kill Jesus. They had already begun to talk about stoning him. How can we kill him? 
But now in Bethany, this tiny town right outside of Jerusalem, two miles. It's like, we can't even get half y'all's houses over here in Andover Hills in two miles, can we? They're like three, three miles away. Somebody's been raised from the dead. And it's through this power of Jesus who has now been declared by this family that he is the Son of God, the Lord of their lives, and the Messiah of Israel's hope. We're really going to kill him now. And people begin to search out Lazarus because he's been raised from the dead. Let's go find him and hear the story. And so now the religious leaders are like, oh, we're going to kill him too. This is really problematic. We're going we're to kill Jesus and we're going to kill Lazarus. And so Jesus begins this move in the center of John's gospel from this public ministry of teaching and healing to this private ministry of dining with friends. Before we have the Last Supper, we have maybe the last lunch, this meal with the Bethany family. Uh, the leaders are out fomenting, they're ready to, to do this, and Jesus goes to their house for another meal. And we get the text as Darren read it, and he read the right eight verses, so it's, we're, we're good to go there. He shows up, and they have a meal. Martha is slaving over the food. She is setting the table. She's clearing the dishes. Martha is doing what Martha does. The way Martha lives out her love and friendship for Christ is to serve dinner. We see it in the first story. She, she heard Jesus say that Mary was the right one sitting at his feet and worshiping. And she said, but this is how, this is how I express my gratitude and my love for you. Mary's at his feet, worshiping him. Uh, she's going to pour this perfume out and, and lavish his feet with nard, a year's worth of wages spent on this, uh, this balm. And she's going to worship and, and, and honor this friend's love in this way. And Lazarus is going to do what apparently Lazarus does, which is he's going to sit at the table and enjoy food and fellowship, right? This is the family pattern. This is how they live out their love for Jesus. We often make uh, Mary the kind of the very center of the story, right? She's, she's the one who clearly gets it right. We're going we're gonna to lavish Jesus' feet with this nard. I think all three of the Bethany family are heroes. They are, they are all the protagonists of the story because they're all living out their thanksgiving for Jesus. The dead have raised. And the way Martha knows how to live that out is through hospitality and community at the table. The way Mary knows how to live it out is to lavish Jesus with worship and thanksgiving at his feet. And the way Lazarus knows to do it is to dwell in the presence of his dear friend who raised him from the dead. Let her do it. Judas uh, wants to make a big deal about this. And I love that the text has the parentheses, right? Judas says, she could have sold that and given the money to the poor. And that would seem real righteous to the people who don't have the parentheses, right? Uh, but our text says it's because Judas liked to stick his hand in the money bag and get some silver coins out. Uh, and, and, and Jesus doesn't even deal with that. He just says, there's always going to be poor. She bought this for my death, and my death is coming. This is, she's, she's done this. We have this whole family living out their worship, living out their friendship, living out their thanksgiving for God's grace in Christ. 
And it's interesting to me, this, this nard should have been saved, right? It should have been uh, the thing that they go and prepare his body for the tomb. This should have been uh, her act of thanksgiving after his death. But Jesus says this is fine, and I love it because farther down John's gospel, we get to John 19 and to the post-crucifixion scene of what do we do with Jesus' body? And John's gospel in particular is, pretty, is interesting to me because he says the women come and then two other people. Does anybody know who the two people are? Crickets. This is surprising, right? It's Joseph of Arimathea who means nothing to us, but it says that he's a Pharisee. And then Nicodemus, who is featured prominently in John 3, this, this Pharisee who recognizes Jesus' uh, grace and power and, and comes to him at night in John 3. And it says that in John 19, they come with the women to get Jesus' body and they bring five pounds of nard. A half decade worth of wages uh, put together into this anointing balm for Jesus' dead body. They didn't need what Mary had. They have more than they could ever need. And these, these two Pharisees who, 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 who have been captivated by God's grace in Christ, these two Pharisees who love Jesus, the text says, uh, are scared that people will know that they will be killed, that they will be uh, pushed to the side because they follow Jesus. And so in this moment, they do what what is the only thing they know how to do, and that's to use their assets to take care of Jesus' body. So when the other disciples have disappeared and have gone off the scene and have either rejected Jesus or hidden or run away or denied him, these two Pharisees and the women come and do only what they know to do for God's grace, and that is to, to anoint him and to bury him. They didn't need what Mary had. This text is about how we respond to God's love and to God's grace. For me, that translates into a whole different way of reading this text. Instead of, well, okay, Jesus was there, and now we're going to have poor, so now it's our time to deal with the poor. And that sermon's there. We can preach it another day. But this one, I am struck by how each person's response to God's love and grace is different, and yet it's all born out of the same uh, move of love and tenderness. And so it's got me thinking all week about what for us as the church is our way of responding to God's lavish love and to his grace. I've just read a book on, uh, by Sarah Coakley, and she talks about the early church mothers and fathers who were uh, aesthetics, aesthetics, not aesthetics, that's pretty stuff, aesthetics. They lived in the desert. They went out and they uh, drew away from uh, the world, and they went out with this idea that uh, they would purify their hearts and orient their whole lives towards God. They would uh, use this, this lens of their desire for God to be the lens for all their desires. So for food and for money and for sex, what does it mean to like, filter these through the lens of a desire for God? And that was, that was the way the ascetics, ascetics responded to God's lavish love and grace. For others, it was uh, martyrdom. It was uh, standing firm in their witness to who God was in the face of uh, governmental um, persecution. For Thomas Cranmer, it was uh, to, to give birth to the Book of Common Prayer and an invitation to orient your lives around a regular rhythm of uh, prayer and worship. For Soren Kierkegaard, 
uh, the way you responded to God's love was to, to purify your heart, to will but one thing, and that's the knowledge of God. For the community of La Chambon in France, uh, the way you respond to God's love and grace is to hide uh, the Jews fleeing from the Nazis, even though you know that there's an SS camp on the corner of your town. For uh, many, the way you respond to God's love in the 50s and 60s was to march in solidarity with those who are marching for civil rights. Mother Teresa told us that maybe one way we could respond to God's love and God's grace is to go to those who are untouchable and touch them. Pope Francis has argued that one of the ways we can respond to God's love and to grace is to give the $5 to the guy standing outside of Chick-fil-A, even if he might buy liquor. It's telling that child in your family who uh, the world says is different that you are perfect. You're precious. I've been been dwelling on this imagery of the church collectively using our response to God's love and grace to beautify the world. Because I think the way you respond is probably a little different than the way you respond and the way you respond and you respond. For something is tugging at your heart as the way that you respond to God's grace. It would be awfully boring if we all looked like Martha, right? If all we could do to respond to God's grace was to throw parties and do the, do the dishes, Right? There'd be nobody to go to the parties. If, we, if all of us took all of our money and poured it out into Nard, it'd be an awfully broke church with nothing but a bunch of perfume, right? And how are we going to have a party and be like Lazarus if we're all like Lazarus sitting at the table? God has gifted you and put desires in your heart to respond to his love and grace in ways uh, that are remarkably different and powerfully beautiful. We'll deal with the sermon on the poor being with us another day. Today, I invite you to consider where you might live out your response to God's lavish love. How you might show the world uh, a, a picture of your thanksgiving. I think it could be beautiful. Yeah. The life of the... I'm going I'm to switch my whole metaphor here and go to Encanto real quickly. Has everybody, no, everybody's not seen Encanto, but we've got a bunch of you. And Encanto, this is the story of this magical family. They've got these gifts. Most of them do. A couple of them don't. Uh, the whole story is about them maybe losing their magic. And in the end, the neighbors come to help this family. And we're in the middle of like the climactic song and they go, I wonder who that is. And it's the whole town. And they come and they, there's this song and then the neighbors sing... Um, we don't have gifts, but we are many. And in a, in a story about these magical families, the beauty is those who don't have something supernatural loving this family well. We might not look like Mary, and we might not look like Mother Teresa. We might not write a book like Thomas Cramer, but uh, we are many. And we have something to offer. Would you pray with me? God of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
God who raises the dead. God who knew and knows what it means to love and to grieve. God who knows what it means to offer yourself up on behalf of others. And God who is raised from the dead. God who has poured out your spirit upon us. We thank you. We are grateful for the beauty that is your grace and your love. Would you awaken inside of us our particular way of responding in beauty? To do that which might bring you glory and that which might honor you. Lord, whether we look like Mary or Martha or Lazarus or Mother Teresa or Thomas Cramner or uh, Martin Luther King or those who are out on the front lines of declaring goodness today, would you show us our gifts and graces and then would you receive our life as an offering back to you? Lord, give us... uh, Give us hearts and minds to picture what it might be and then to go in boldness to do it. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.